Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Welcome back if you've been before, and welcome if this is your first time here. Can I just ask you, please, if you have a moment and you can figure out how to do it, because it's not that simple, would you like to, would you mind um, rating and reviewing this podcast? I mean, obviously, if you don't like it, I prefer that you didn't do it, but if you do like it, would you mind doing that for me, please? if you can figure out how to do it, as I say. I'm recording this in December on one of those beautiful days that completely reaffirms my faith in nature. There's a piercing blue sky and a perfect sun and a really strong white frost. Anyway, today's chat is with Steve Chapman. Steve spoke at this year's Good Life Experience and I was immediately charmed and um, magnetized by him and towards him. He is an artist, but an artist who does things very differently. His podcast, uh, called The Sound of Silence, which I've just recorded with him, is a short burst of complete silence. He introduces the guest, then he and the guest sit in silence, and then the podcast is over. And he has recorded 80-something of those, and it's a fascinating project because, of course, it completely goes against the let's talk about myself, nature of all podcasts, or most podcasts, except Steve's. Anyway, I met with Steve in London and we recorded his podcast and then we sat down together and we chatted about his work. I found this absolutely fascinating and I've loved all of my chats, but this was definitely one of my favorites. So without any further ado, here is me speaking to Steve Chapman. To begin with, I mean, tell me, how old are you now? I'm 46 now. And 47 how, next year. And what, what's your, what is your, what, what are you doing at the moment? What's your work? I mean, you're, you're fundamentally an artist and a writer and a, a speaker, a sort of motivational yeah. or speaker. Tell me what your, you know, what your career involves at the moment. I mean, what's, what have you done That's this nice. year? That's nice. It's much easier to describe what you're doing than what you are, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so today I'm off to paint a mural at a subversive coffee shop in in um, London Bridge. Yeah, but t- hold on, you just sh- that's amazing. Oh, sorry right, to okay. interrupt. That's amazing because yeah. this place is called Fuck Coffee. Yeah, and it's maybe a new, it's a it's a new generation coffee shop. Tell me what the mural is because you show me some pictures and they're very good. Yeah, the mural is. I sat down. This was again an introduction for a friend to this coffee shop. Um, I sat down and shared some ideas. The mural is of a surreal London skyline, um, which I did, I was in Chicago earlier this year and I drew a surreal Chicago skyline. I thought, I really like that. So it's a surreal London skyline with lots of patterns and shapes in it, um, lots of eyes. So there's eyes on the Shard, there's eyes on Big Ben. I hidden, no one's seen it yet, hidden a little subversive Daniel Johnson message in some of them. Um, And then below that is a marketplace, because it's in London Bridge, this shop. So the skylines are around there, and I thought, right, I'll draw Borough Market. But the marketplace is run by celebrities um, doing sidelines, like little sidelines, such as Taylor Swift's pre-1970 single slot uh, toaster repair service, um, Bob Mortimer's insect tattoo parlour. And it's, it's just something that they love the idea of. Um, and it's all stuff that I've drawn previously, but I'm collating it all together. So is, your, is your work, your, I, I, I've interrupted you there, but is, is your art always subversive? 
I, I like it to be, yeah. I think all of my work is. I'm interested in screwing around with what's regarded as normal. Um, I often talk about it as um, freeing people from stuck loops of common sense. So it's always something slightly off, slightly wonky, um, but not deliberately trying to do that. I think that's just the way my brain is. I think age 46, I finally thought, oh, right, this, uh, this strange way in which I think is, uh, it doesn't need to be straightened up. It's also, I think your art is never, is never negative. I mean, it's, I think subversive, you know, often implies kind of antagonistic. Yeah. But, it, but actually, in your case, it's generally sort of done with just warmth, but from, if you like, yeah. left of centre. Is that... Yeah, absolutely. It's never, um, it's never hateful. It's never um, like political propaganda, even though I've got strong views around that, because I don't necessarily think that works. It's, it's just setting up an opposition. Um, so my, I, I installed a gallery on Hungerford Bridge. Um, it was called the Hungerford Bridge Gallery of Outsider Art. And for 91 days, I was the curator of London's smallest independent outsider art gallery with like 10,000 visitors a day, mainly because they wanted to walk across the bridge. And how much art did you have in it? Um, there were eight huge wooden pieces that I cut out and I made a custom washing pole to get them over onto this plinth. Because you couldn't get them off. I like, injured my ribs doing it. But the whole idea of that project was to um, get people to look up, to pause, to stop, to go, uh, um, and to show that art doesn't need to be in a big institution, doesn't need to be in a gallery. So it's subversive in that way. It's making a real strong stand against the elitism of art. It was making a strong stand against um, what I've come to know as the, the uh, digital extraction economy, where everyone's just looking down on their phones. And for 91 days, there'd be crowds of people around it just going, I don't know what this is. What is this thing? And I, there was no way people... I didn't have my name on it, so it made it even more mysterious. But so, so just going back to my original question, so at the moment, this, this year, you're doing this amazing mural in Fuckoffee in Bermondsey. Yeah. What, what else have you, are you doing or have you done this year? Well, a lot of my time has been taken up with the Sound of Silence podcast, um, which is, again, it came... Most of my ideas come when I'm out running. I run virtually every other day. Um, and I often joke that I get to a point when I'm running where my self-doubt can't keep up with me because it's not fit enough. So Sound of Silence came to me while I'm running. I just thought, what would the opposite of a podcast be? And then Chain of Events um, and A Sound of Silence is the world's first silent podcast featuring special guests. And you're, trying to, you're close to doing 100 different people who sit yeah. in silence after an introduction. Yeah, that's two it. Minutes. Yeah. yeah, so the project started off thinking, all right, we'll have two minutes of silence and then maybe a bit of an introduction. Um, other than constraints of I want it to be, if we're talking binary terms, 50-50 male-female, um, not just be with people I know. Um, and yes, only 100 episodes, which the 100 episodes only came to me five episodes in. Um, I started recording it early 2018. And I thought, something's missing here. It doesn't feel... Hmm. And I, so I thought, oh, I need an end point. I'm really interested in impermanence and the fact that if something has an end, it makes it changes the nature of it while it exists. So yeah, only 100 episodes. I love the way that Mike Skinner of The Streets, who I think is one of the greatest musicians yeah. to ever make music, when he was asked why he quit after five albums, he said, because five albums makes a nice box set. Yeah, yeah. It was like, you know, it, and, and I kind of get that. Yeah. Um, it's, there's, um, I'm a big fan of Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt's Oblique Strategy Cards, um, which is just it's some things that they used to use when they were working. One of my favourite cards in that just said, simply says, is it finished or is it done? 
I think it's such a brilliant question for creatives to ask. Um, so yeah, it needs an endpoint, and already people are saying, "Oh, you're going to keep going," and I'll miss it when it's gone. But no, nothing's permanent. I think there's something really interesting in this actually, which I hadn't, which I kind of considered, but I hadn't considered in this context, is that we we assume that kind of everything's forever. So you know, all of the institutions and and even the kind of shops and department stores and, and things that we've grown up with, you kind of, or businesses that yeah. have existed, we kind of grow up thinking they'll be here forever. And then if you reflect back on things, you know, TV programs, series of books, um, shops, when you were little, none of them exist no. anymore. No. And, and, and I think, you know, the sort of, in a very kind of career-based world, we've perhaps come to a a sort of point where we assume that everything's forever, but there's something quite nice about yeah. wrapping it up, I think. Yeah, I think ending well. If you had have a choice to end well, because um, it's got to end at some point, why not have that choice? I, I'm funny enough, I'm thinking about the same with this podcast. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm on about 52 right. or 3 now, and I'm kind of thinking, you know, I'd, 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 I'd like, I want to do something else, Yeah. but I, I quite like the challenge of ending it. But, okay, so The Sound of Silence is, is, is a, a collection of things. Now, what, what's the kind of, so that, that then exists, but you have got an idea about trying, I think, to get that into some sort of permanent archive somewhere, have you? Yeah, well, there's a, there's a couple of things with Sound of Silence. Is the whole People ask me about the stats of the podcast, and it's like, I have no idea. I looked at them once and didn't understand them. Um, but the intention of it is to create an exhibition of collected silence, uh, which will hopefully be end of 2020, early 2021. And I've got a vision of it being in the tanks at the Tate Modern. We'll see if I have to scale back my ambition or not. As it happens, um, but hundred light boxes around the world, around the wall, uh, around the wall, with pictures of the people holding the logo that are the guests, and listening posts where you listen to the silence. But in the middle of the space, wherever it's going to be, um, I want to build a two-person anechoic soundproof booth, which members of the public can go and sit in the silence with a two-minute egg timer. So it's silence within silence. There's something I, I just love the idea of exhibiting collected silence. I think it's I, it, it, it's fascinating. I mean, I haven't thought hugely about silence. I I recently read that book by the Norwegian guy. Yeah, a few people silence. have mentioned that to me. Yeah, um, which is which is actually quite, I, I found quite interesting. But but more interesting to me is the sort of collective desire for noise cancelling headphones. Yeah, um, which are the most magnificent things. Yeah. Um, so we're we're clearly we've you know and obviously a lot of people listen to things through those but they're still trying to silence out the rest of the world yeah and i actually walked to the to peddlers this morning probably for the first time ever with my noise cancelling um airpods in and because I, I was desperate to listen to a particular nick cave song that was right going through my head yeah. and I, I was amazed to think to realize how many other people were wearing them yeah i'd never kind of noticed but i mean almost one in every five people yeah. is wearing something that shuts it out well it's um it's a fascinating thing. I'm writing a book of the adventures of Sound of Silence because I've met some amazing people. I've been to places I never have, would have gone to. Um, but the strapline for the book is how an experiment in nothing revealed everything. Because through inquiring into silence, there's just so much in there. And I wrote a blog, um, I think it was earlier this year, that I called Sixty Shades of Silence. I play on Sixty Shades of Grey just to get people to read it. Um, and in that, I said, right, there's, there's silence is an inadequate word to describe the human experience of silence. So silence, biologically, I guess, is an absence of vibration. Or, or silence is an ear experiencing an absence of vibration. But the human experience is so much more multifaceted. 
And it's like the legend, I don't know how true it is, of the Inuits having 100 words for snow or 1,000 words for snow. It's a similar thing with silence. Because if we sit in silence here, Charlie, it'd be different to if I wasn't here and it was just you in silence. Or if you were sitting on stage in front of a 1,000 people in silence. Or you're sitting on a beach in silence. It's a relational thing. Well, I think one of the really interesting things that you you said just before you and I recorded an episode um, of, of your podcast is that it can become quite awkward when we haven't got noise or words to mm. fill. I mean, it's a bit like that car journey together, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Although at least in the car journey, we're both don't have to look at each other. Yeah, in the yeah, eye. yeah. Um, but okay, so you've got that, and you've got the you've got your your art and your murals, and you're writing a book. Yeah. Tell me some other things that you're doing at the moment. Um, I am. Uh, well, I do. I do work in organisations as well, um, which is because none of this other stuff pays any money. I, I just do it because I think I was thinking on the way here. Everything is a side hustle to another side hustle, but I pay my tax on it, um, so it's not a literal side hustle. But there's work in organisations, so um, I do lots of works with. Uh, um, groups or companies, but I'm quite choosy about who they are, that really want to nurture creativity in the workplace, that really want to explore. I'm interested in the power of exploring, not knowing of dissonance, of confusion, of fogginess, of anxiety. All of those things that we avoid, I think, can be quite potent creative forces. From, from, from what I understand of you, you're trying to kind of get people to unlearn corporate habits, corporate with a small c, that, that, that are kind of getting them into a rut, is that, is that yeah, right? Yeah, it's, it's, and again, it's not universally making that necessarily bad, um, but it's, often these habits are unhelpful, often these habits um, get in the way of the very thing that people want. Um, but, but And I come across it all the time, I'll have a, a corporate or someone say, right, I really want to get better with not knowing, I want to live life more spontaneously and more freely, um, but can you tell us what we're going to do and how we're going to measure it? And it's like, well, no, I can't. You know. No. So, so what? So, so no. But I mean, I, I'm I'm surprised and happy that that companies are prepared to employ someone to do something which is so creative and in many ways kind of counter to normal kind of yeah. you know business talk. I mean, what what? So you would get approached by? Let's say you get approached. Let's say I'm a company and, yeah. and I and I you know I like what you do, um, and I approach you and you like my company. Yeah. What sort of thing would you come in and, and do? It tends to start with conversations with individuals. So I, I, think, I, I don't think I've ever gone through the formal procurement process because that just, that's, that's designed for safety and risk management, but I also think it's designed to stop anything actually changing. It's a, it, it's a clever defence against anxiety. So conversations to work out what is life like, really like around here and we'll work out well, what would be most helpful. And it tends to take the form of workshops, um, maybe a one or a two day workshop where we're just exploring stuff. We may be exploring improvising, we may be exploring the things that inhibit us um, being alive in the moment, such as shame, the superego, the inner critic. Um, we Companies also have this kind of thing that I think is called learned helplessness as well. Right. That they believe that they can't change. Yeah. And I think civil servants often complain of this, that the kind of rungs above them will not allow change, so they yeah. can't change, so it kind of goes further down the ladder. Yeah, and it's, whatever level, and I've worked with people um, 
quite a lot in factories at the coalface and with with people on the board and the CEOs. You know, everyone's as screwed up as everyone else um, when you get down to it. But there is that learned helplessness. I've spent 20 years in the corporate world, which is a different story. I went straight from school into a factory. 20 years later, I left as a global director. Um, but I, I didn't know how to function. And it's, it's similar to, I use the analogy, of it's similar to an animal in captivity. So an animal in captivity, let's say, say a tiger in captivity, should be the most contented and del delighted and satisfied animal. Because it has shelter, it has food, it has a mate, it's inoculated against disease, if anything goes wrong with it, it has a habitat. Um, but if that tiger was released into the wild, it would go, well, what's all this shit? I can't, I can't cope. So it pre produces a neurotic tiger. And that was my experience of leaving the corporate world, is just simple things like, I don't even know how tax works, because it's always been done for me. But then other things like, um, I remember once I'd gone out on my own, sitting down at my computer, and thinking, oh, I'm such a loser, I don't know what to do. Yes, yeah. Because I'm so used to the stimulation and yes. the day being organised. Well, I, want, I want to come back to that, Steve, but I mean, I'm really fascinated by this, by these, uh, this corporate work, and I think that, is, is there a sort of way in which, so you're essentially trying to encourage creativity. Yeah. Creativity of thought and action. Yeah, it's creativity as a force for good. Um, is everyone able to be creative, do you think? Or, or, or I mean, because generally we... You know, maybe this is the school system. I, d I don't actually know, and I, 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 the school system served me very well, so I've got no criticism. But it it seems to be that you're divided into academic, yeah, which is called clever, and yeah. creative, which is not called clever, at school. Do you think there is a division between? I mean, do you encounter anyone in this work who just has no ability ever to be nurtured into creativity, or do you think everyone can be? I I think there's short. Honest answer, and I'll elaborate on that, is I don't know. Um, I think I used to say, yes, everyone can be creative. And I think everyone there is the potential to, but it requires letting go of some fundamental things that some people may be unable to let go of. Um, and it may be the um, holding on to those things. The, the discomfort of letting go is, they perceive it as worse as not being creative. So I'm not, I'm not sure yes, if everyone yes. will be able to. I think there's the potential there. But it's, it's again, creativity, I hate the word. It's, a like, it's been thingified, isn't it? It's been like creativity, like, can you be, is it as if there's a way of judging it? I, 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 I don't think it was, I mean, I think I am probably someone he described as creative, but I don't think it was even a word when I was growing up. No, it's, um, I, don't, I don't remember it being used at school or not. And, and I remember subjects such as art, music and drama being so dull. Um, I just think I we weren't allowed, we weren't really encouraged to do them unless we were already very good at them. Yeah. So kind of, if you came to school and you're really sort of fully formed portrait painter, they might stick you in the arts. Yeah. But if you'd never done any painting but had an interest in it, they go, oh, no, stick with the geography. I think. Yeah. And it's um, I see it with my daughter growing up. She's a brilliant artist. She's nearly thirteen. Um, I think probably just for her own determination and mine and my wife's influence, when a teacher at school says you don't draw it like that, she says that's how I draw it. Um, so there is that. that I imagine growing that up in your household, off. you'd have a fairly strong <laughs> yeah. sense of, of your own of your own um, rightness in that regard. Just so let, let's just spool back, right back. Yeah. So um, you leave school aged what? It would. I did A level geography because I liked going up mountains. So that would have been what seventeen, eighteen. So did I. I, I loved A level yeah. geography. I didn't get. I got a D oh. in it. 
<laughs> because I just loved going up the mountains and Rosh Matones and glaciation and all of that stuff. I it loved was... all that stuff. I find it so... Geography is regarded as a really, a real dunce's subject. Yeah. But I always think anyone who lives or has a fleeting interest in the countryside, I'd like to know why that yeah. valley looks like that. Or, yeah. But all my friends think it's just like a dunce's subject. So. Well, it depends if, if studying is only in order to get some monetary reward later in life. I, yeah. I, I love being up mountains. We went in caves, we went to North York Moors, we went to, we went to Wales, um, went to the Lake District. And that's the only reason I did it. And um, where, was, where was the school? School was in Chesant in Hertfordshire. Okay. So I grew up in North London in Tottenham and Edmonton. And then the majority of my secondary school education was in Chesant in Hertfordshire. I went to the you, same. Had you moved? Had you... Yeah, we moved there. Um, yeah. So it's the same school that um, Victoria Beckham went to. So oh, she was in the year below me. Really? Um, yeah. Oh, so very posh, presumably. That, that's what I always say when they <laughs> refer to her as posh by. She's a lovely, uh, lovely girl from the time I knew her at school, but it wasn't. It wasn't the best of schools. Um, no, I mean, I know I'm she's actually, written I, a lot about. I think she's a huge. I think she's a huge. I'm hugely admired. Yeah. To be hugely admired, and I, I'm sure that lots of people, um, you know, almost as a kind of chain reaction, just snide, uh, snide about her. But it seems yeah. to me absolutely amazing what she's done with her life. Incredible. Yeah, and she, she used. To, she's written about it a lot. She used to get bullied a lot at school. She didn't particularly enjoy the school. But yeah, it was a school in uh, school in Chesant in Hertfordshire. Right. Okay. And so, and so, you you did. Did you go to university then? No. No. So neither of my parents, well, none of my family had been to university. My cousin, my older cousin, had been to study to be a teacher, but none of the entire family had ever been to university. So it wasn't. I, I still can't believe this is this is true for me. But I I just wasn't even aware of it. I remember in the sixth form, my friends filling out the Ucker and PCAS forms. I still remember the names of those forms, and just thinking, well, what are they doing that for? Um, which age 18, it feels really naive. And they all went off. One of my best friends went travelling. I think if school doesn't, I think if school doesn't really tell you that university is something that you should really consider, then how can you? No. If your parents aren't telling you that. I, I, I mean, you know, the odd person, or not odd, but I mean, occasional person yeah. might be, you know, I, clever enough to kind of research it. Yeah. But I was, in, I was highly naive and childish. Yeah. At Seventeen, I think. Well, and I didn't, I didn't have. A passion. Well, I did have a passion, but I couldn't see a way of education supporting that. So when I left school, I wanted to be, um, I wanted to work in radio. I wanted to write radio, produce radio, um, and I also wanted to be a band roadie for some reason. Um, but I remember going to see a career advisor with my mum and dad there. I must have been fifteen at the time, and said that I want to be a, I want to work in radio. And the career advisor looked not at me, but to my mum and dad. He said, "Well, you have to be really good to do that. It's a really competitive." Uh, industry, which my mum and dad obviously wanting the best for me didn't really encourage that. And it's true what he said, it is a cutthroat, rather ageist industry that if you don't, at least for popular radio, if you haven't made it by the time you're 25, you're not going to. Sure, I mean, you're not going to make it if you don't try it. No, so I gave up on that and... It's it's, what's fascinating how what is contextually a rather, quite a small comment can have such a huge impact on on a young person. I mean, I think, I'm, I'm not you know that person's comment seems to me to be extraordinary and and, and irresponsible, but they might not have been a bad person. They're no. just making a throwaway comment. Exactly, and it's those. I think it's those little things. It's like a death of a thousand cuts. There was no one that said you are not good at these things. Um, but of course, conversely, in a weird way, you often hear that had that careers advisor gone, ah, now that's really interesting because yeah. I do my friend. Yeah, yeah. It happens to be a producer at you know Radio Sheffield. Yeah, I'll get you to meet them, um, 
you may well, you know, that might have been the sort of person now you're now attributing to your yeah, who knows? success. It doesn't, you know, that catalyst doesn't take much. Well, and also, I have absolutely no regrets about any of this because all of these little steps lead to us sitting here today. Yes. Um, and I think also, I think, I think there's something truly fascinating about kind of going through this kind of self-taught sort of emerging process yeah. through career. So, so in fact, so you don't go into radio and, and, and you don't, um, you don't do the sort of things that you're dreaming of. You, you, you say you, did you go straight into working? In a yeah, I, um, I remember, um, my mum cutting out loads of adverts from the paper pre-internet days and just leaving them on my bed when I come in because it's like, you're going to have to pay some rent now or some housekeeping. And just terrible things. I went for a job, not that they're a terrible job, but terrible for someone like me to do it. I went for an interview in a state agent, so I had to wear a shirt and tie, and I obviously didn't get that job. I remember there was an advert um, that I responded to to work in a concrete factory, and I went there, and I was, I was quite scrawny um, back then, and they wouldn't give me the job because they didn't think I could lift the bags of concrete. And then I got a job in a factory, um, making... Packing, um, making it was stomach ulcer medicine and asthma products. So I got a job packing boxes. Um, just but always like, this is to earn a bit of money, then I'm gonna go and do what I really wanna do. And to cut a long story short, 20 years later, I left there as like global director of change and well, people. I want to know about that yeah. story. So that's fascinating. So, I mean, it sounds like it was not a fantastic job and, and probably and clearly you know you were, you were suited to other things and that's not to be derogatory about it I hope yeah. but no, no but um so so you went in there age 18 yes. 17 yeah and for your first how long you were you were packing yeah I think for two years was was packing boxes but I'd, I've got such a curious mind that I'd be working on one machine I think oh what about that machine over there and I say look can I go and work on that machine and they go okay then um so again, sort of broadly working around the factory without progressing. Um, and then it's just someone noticed that I was quite good with people. Um, and they said, oh, do you go and work in this other part of the factory um, and be a supervisor for a team. Which immediately, this is where I start to get into an adult relationship with my inner critic. My inner critic saying, well, you've, you've not been trained as a supervisor. You don't know the magic to management that everybody else obviously knows. But I did it anyway, and all my tactics were, were to just be interested in these people. Just, that was it, be interested in them, be nice to did them. Did you hear my talk at the Good Life Experience, by any chance? I don't know, I only no, heard your, I, um, I, your I, One Track Minds. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I wrote, I, 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 I'm talking, I was talking precisely right, about this, yeah. and how anyone is interesting if you're interested in Yeah, them. and I then kept getting put in charge of inverted commas problem teams. Right. Um, so again, the fact that they were normally um, teams of all men. Um, How many people in the factory? Right? I mean, in this factory, probably a thousand people. Right. Um, in Hertfordshire, so not far from where I worked. So I get put in charge of problem teams, and all I do is just be interested in them. And, and learn do, their names. And, learn, and just know what made them tick, and sort of let them get away with some stuff that didn't really matter, and everything that you shouldn't do um, in the book of how to manage people in factories. And the criticism I always used to get from bosses was I was too pally with them, but I thought, okay but I can get, they'll do anything that I want them to, because I'm their mate. Um, and so that kept progressing, and, and until I got more and more senior roles, and then someone said, well, why don't you, why don't you do a job in organisation development and culture change? And I thought, is that, what's that, is that a thing? That's quite an, sorry, but that's actually interesting, because that seems to chime precisely against the sort of leadership that was saying to you, 
by the way, you're too chummy with these people. Yeah. So it was, it was almost like someone was in, sen- in a senior position thought that something was slightly wrong in that system. Well, it's, it's always been for me, in, in that world at least, and I guess in the world I'm in now, is there's been one boss or mentor that sort of sees that, doesn't understand it, but sees that I'm onto something, or there's something in the way that I'm doing things. And that's what happened there. And this carried on going. So I, I became really, um, again, my, my curiosity and restlessness at the factory. I, I thought, I like doing this broad culture job. Um, so I wasn't in charge of a team, but I'd go and do all this work with teams, getting them to work better and getting to be more creative. So I just went in the phone book, uh, the online phone book, and looked, right, who's in charge of this for the entire company? And sent them an email, said, can I come and buy you a coffee? I went and bought my coffee and said, look, this is what I do. Can I come and work with you for no more money? And they said, yeah, all right then. Um, and then after a, a, about six months of working with them, they said, oh, we want to keep you. We're going to give you a director role. And again, the inner critic comes back in saying, well, it's director, come on, you get cars and shares in this now. But and well, I that, think we're all, I mean, I think you know, anyone of any sensitivity is, has a strong inner critic or yeah. imposter syndrome. I mean, I always think, I, I mean, I literally have massive imposter yeah, syndrome, yeah. you know, that's, but I think that's just it's actually a good thing, isn't it? Well, I often describe myself as a professional imposter now. I quite like it as a badge of honour. Yeah, or, or a professional a lot outsider. Arrogant, essentially. Yeah. Because, you know, the arrogant, the arrogant or insensitive person just thinks, well, I'm born to this, I deserve this, yeah. I'm really extremely good at it. But, yeah. Um, well, this, this boss, um, Sally, who I often talk about when I'm telling this story, not only did she give me the role, she said, what do you want to do? I'll pay for you to do some development. What do you want to do? Do you want to do an MBA? And I thought, oh, sounds like it's not for me um, and I went and studied with the NTL Institute for a year which is the National Training Laboratories which are a lot of the people that discovered T groups and group work and social change in the workplace and society post World War II and I spent a year with them the first workshop was um, a T group which is a 40 hour sitting in a circle for 40 hours with no agenda for 40 hours what, 40 hours of that? It's, it's 10 hours a day. Okay. Um, and you took breaks, but you weren't allowed to talk about tea group outside of tea group. Um, and that's it. You have two facilitators there, just in case they're needed. So who came up with this concept? This was, I, it was, I think it was a Tavistock Institute, came up with it post-World War II as a, a human, I think they called it the Human Interaction Lab or something like that. And its simplicity belies its potency because... The agenda is whatever is going on for you and those in the group at that point in time. But 40 hours is enough to make it really intense. Mm-hmm. And what was really interesting for my tea group, so there were 16 of us, was um, I was the only man in it. They're meant, they're meant to be as diverse as possible, but there weren't many men on the program. Um, so it was even more fascinating for me because it was a 40, 40 hours of me asking myself to, some difficult questions like, what happened to that guy that used to like, do radio shows in his bedroom and draw the Happy Book comics and stuff like that? And then also, and what now does it mean to be a white, western, tall, straight, able-bodied white man? Um, and completely confronted with that over the 40 hours in ways that were painful and helpful and inspiring and <laughs> made, made me want to run away from it. But I think that was, a, again, a pivotal moment of just thinking, actually, no, I've, what, happened, what happened to this guy? 
stuff. You bring out your character, though, it sounds to me. Yeah. Because all these things, you know, this confusion is, is seems to me, you know, not knowing you very well, but knowing you and, and studying your work, it seems that this confusion is at the root of what you do. Yeah. Not, not that you're confused in the sense you're wandering around not knowing where to no. go, but that you like a world that isn't clear and, and defined. And Yeah, it's like, so, it's, um, I think there's a, a hypnotherapist, Milton Erickson, said confusion always precedes enlightenment. Um, I don't take it quite that literally, but when I'm in a fog, I know there's something potentially delicious on the other side of it. And then on the back of that tea group, I, I um, went on to do my master's degree at Ashridge. Okay, so you so essentially you, you, you rose through the ranks because of your extraordinary kind of what is now known as emotional intelligence, empathy, people skills. Mm. Something I think I'm convinced people are born with. I don't yeah. think you can Yeah, I yeah. you know, I think you can learn it, but you, you, you it's not easy to learn. Um, you become a director and then you start to want to kind of do something different. Is that yeah. yeah. I mean that's what happened as a result of the two year masters programme at Ashridge business right. school, which was a master's in change, but it really was the philosophy, psychology and sociology of human organising, be that an organisation or society. And I loved it. Um, it, was the, it was the first time that I felt I was invited to write and speak just from my own experience. And I got really good marks for it. And it's like, oh, this is what I imagined academia would be like. How interesting. So you, you applied to them through an interview? No, it was, again, it was another thing I knew, a guy called Bill Critchley, who was a, uh, the professor who co-founded the programme. He'd been running it for like 13 years. And three years in a row, Bill would say to me, come on, come and do the programme. And I said, no, no, I'm not good enough for an academic. No, no, no. Um, and he asked me just after tea group, he said, I'm not going to ask you again. Are you going to come and do it or what? And the reason he asked me is because he knew me, he knew my work, he knew the way I thought. Um, again, that similar story of someone seeing something and he said, are you going to do it or not? I said, okay then. And he went, well, you're in, that was your interview. And so, again, the same as I got the... <laughs> I only ever had one interview in my life, and that was for the job in the factory. So I went there, and I felt physically sick the first day I was there, because Ashridge is a big castle. Uh, it's, it's, like, it feels like an academic institution. And I just thought, I do not belong here. Um, and the very first assignment I wrote, I tried to write it in a very clever intellectual way, like blah, blah, blah says this. And my tutor just said, this all sounds very clever, but I can't see you in it. If you, if you cannot write in a way that is just you expressing you, you're not going to pass this programme. Um, and then I just wrote from, in the same way that we're talking now, like this is my perspective on stuff. And then I get brilliant marks back. And I wrote my dissertation on spontaneity. So, um, again, this is, the, this is the critical part, I think, is the, the T group and then Ashridge and my dissertation. Because I just thought, well, half of the problems are this illusion of control and certainty and that there is anything other than now. So I wrote my dissertation on spontaneity. I trained in improv. I performed improv. as part. That was my research. Um, and I remember sitting down in my Viva and um, the assessor looking at me and saying... Um, pass not only is it a pass it's the highest mark we've ever given a dissertation and you got 87 percent for your dissertation and i remember i just burst into tears and it was that moment where it was like the academic demon just went oh fuck it i'm out of here <laughs> this battle's lost how interesting i mean i i um it's i think you and i have incredibly similar thought yeah. patterns because i've got this idea which may not quite be what you're talking about but my my notion is that in in business in particular or as in relationships there's no such thing as a good or bad idea. It's how you act on that idea. Yeah. So we tend to kind of make up things. I'll say, well, I want to do a festival. And then we just get on with it. 
And actually, it's the work, the effort, not, not just the pure physical work, but the effort, the energy that yeah. we put into that that makes it... Yeah. I mean, the, the, you know, say something like the good life experience may turn out to be the, the best idea ever in the world or the worst idea. Yeah. But, but that's not to do with its original conception no. as a notion. So I think spontaneity is, is, um, is, is a really interesting thing. And I suppose the challenge is getting corporate... I don't think it's difficult at home to be spontaneous yeah. or with your mates necessarily. And, uh, but I think it's, it's, it's that challenge of getting um, companies, people to do that yeah. and not feel like they're being a fool, right? Yeah. I mean, that, that's the thing. A lot of it is fear-driven, anxiety-driven. Um, a lot of the unquestioned corporate traditions of agendas and structures and strategies, they might be helpful, but they're defences against anxiety. Mm. It's almost like a... Uh, it's stuff that you wouldn't apply to your family, like you say. You wouldn't come and say, Charlie, how's the family? Are they efficient? Are they, <laughs> they hitting all their metrics? It just seems weird, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yes. But um, in my experience, it is about to go in and just say, right, let's start where we show up and see what happens. It's too anxiety-provoking. So it's about pacing and leading. It's what is just enough structure. I call it the world of just enoughness. What is just enough structure to contain anxiety so we can function? And that may be... We've got a day, or we've got a room, or we've got an hour, or we've got some structure, but leaving space within that for things to emerge. And you find that, so what you mean is that you've got to tell your clients, if that's the word, yeah. kind of what, how it's going to work, or, yeah. they, or they're just kind of slightly at sea. Yeah, I mean, some will just go, look, we'll just turn up and do some stuff, um, which I don't find that, that helpful. <laughs> I actually want a bit of an idea of what they want to work on. But it may be, so uh, there was a group I was, it was a, board group I was doing some development work with and I was just going to sit with them while they did their work and I said well if we take an hour at the start and I'm just going to do a few things with you that will be a bit bit weird um, but that's the intention of them being weird and if it feels weird then it's working then you can run this bit of your agenda and then we're going to take an hour here which is a bit more of an open space and we'll just see if there's anything we need to work on and it's almost like um just giving them enough of a sense of structure so they can participate. Because mm. we always talk about move out of the comfort zone, but I think if you're in your distress zone, that's also not helpful. So I want to find that, I call it the sweet spot of discomfort, where you can still function, but it feels... Do you, I, I imagine that often the, the real challenge with these things is when someone or, or two or three people are just really anti your idea yeah. and just think you're some stupid yeah, yeah. friggin' artist who's turned yeah. up. Do you get that quite a lot? Less so now. And I think with, I think the more my work's been known, people sort of know what they're getting themselves into. But I remember really early on working with a group of academics at London University. And they said, we want to explore uncertainty, anxiety and spontaneity. So I said, brilliant, I'll come and do a day with you. And I think there was maybe 20 people in the room, 10 of them were senior academics. I mean, very stereotypical senior academics and the vice chancellor. The other 10 were university staff. And I had a little bit of a framing and I just thought, right, let's just experiment. We're just going to do some, some improv exercises. It's a great way to explore the lived experience of uncertainty. And, and before we even got into it, they go, well, no, no, what's the, what's the theoretical backing of this? I don't agree with this. And they're, they're all deflecting from the experience because their world was... That's all theory. they know. Yeah. yeah. And I met, I met them where they're at and with empathy and compassion. Um, but it was horrible. And then I got to lunchtime, and it was the first time I've done this, and I've done this loads of times since. And I said, I don't think you're really enjoying this or getting anything from it, and I'm certainly not. So if you don't want to come back after lunch break, don't. I'll work with whoever wants to come back. And ate 
of that 10 didn't come back. And those that came back, we had a brilliant afternoon. Mm. Um, because yes. I don't think, I, I really avoid work that is work to convince people that the work is a good idea. Because I can't be, I can't be asked to be honest. I, I totally um, get, I totally yeah. get, I totally get it. Yeah, yeah I totally get. So it. there's got to be a glimmer of hope. Yeah. Um, and I wrote a blog uh, a couple of years ago and an article for an online magazine that was called "So You Want More Creativity in the Workplace? Are You Serious?" And it was a list of five questions to put people off working with me. Uh, things like how uncomfortable are you prepared to get? What are you prepared to let go of? And what are you going to do when somebody does something you don't like? Um, the, the, one of the questions which was one of my favourite was what is your policy on ugly babies that meaning the thing that you're presented with and you go oh what are you going to do um, because let's just have that conversation up front and it's the same with, with money um, it's like well you, you write down what you want for this and send it off to procurement it's like well no what's your budget yes and if like I'll, I'll do it for whatever budget you got mm. And I remember one organisation said to me, but if we tell you what budget we've got, you're going to charge us that. And it's well, of course I am. What's wrong with that? Yeah. It's like, just have it. Yes, yeah. And it's just, can we just meet as human beings up front? Um, well, it's a wonderful, I mean, it's an amazing way of working if, if you can do it. And obviously, you know, it is working for you. I mean, are you yeah. very busy with this? I'm, I'm very busy. I mean, this is the, um, I, I listen to and read a lot of Alan Watts, um, listening to, uh, reading his stuff around, I can't remember what it's called but him talking about the difference between cash and wealth. So um, I, I, th I feel busy and fulfilled um, in the work that I'm doing. Um, if I was to equate it to how much money am I earning compared to in the corporate world, it's completely different. It's significantly less. But I don't I, give a shit. I, I think I, I've had this, this major recal. I mean, I'm, I'm 55, so I'm yeah. a little bit older than you, or quite a lot older than you. Um, I, I, think, I think, you know, as for me... I don't know whether we need to do it as a wider society, we need to redefine success because it seems to me that success is, um, uh, you know, she's really successful. She's got three kids in private school and a Range Rover. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, probably crying herself to sleep as well. Um, and I think that for me, I've realised that my principal metric of success is, is people-based. Yeah. So I employ over 100 people. I, and, and if you say that, they go, God, you must be really rich. And I'm not. I mean, I've you know, basically just about got enough in my bank account yeah. at any given time to get on. I live the life of Riley. I mean, I'm very lucky, but, and I lead a highly geared life. But yeah. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm a long way off really rich. But of those 100 people that work for me, I'd, and the 100 that have worked for me in the past, I'd say that almost all of them have had a good time yeah. working for me. And have left, whether they're even conscious of it, slightly better off yeah. than they were and that, that's, yeah. I think and it's, that's, 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 for me, that's enough because I'm never going to be Richard Branson. Yeah. And it's, I, I yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be him. I want to be, I want to be me. Um, no, but, but I wouldn't mind, I, I, you know, there was a, my point is, you know, I wouldn't mind, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't, still wouldn't mind being rich. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to happen. No. So there's no point. So without wishing to come on too kind of, you know, mindful about this, I'm just like, well, why not start recalibrating yeah. What success is? I mean, for me, success is, am I regularly losing myself in a sense of flow with the stuff I'm doing? Like, at the last however long we've been talking, like painting the mural, like I had a day in Deal in Kent hiding bits of art around the, around the town for people in the community to find. And they're just magical days, and they end up costing me money. But then there is... Um, I'll charge a decent amount of money for corporate work mm. because... The, <laughs> they should pay for it because I'm taking big risks in doing it. 
And, and that nice balance of doing that, I, I quite like the, right, let's think, I've got three months mortgage probably covered, maybe two months, but that, that there's that lovely tension in that. Yes, I think I think, well. I think there is. And, and, and also it seems to me, and I could be wrong, but you've been... You, you, you've always been someone who's fundamentally happy in your own skin. Is that yeah. right? Because the way you tell the story, I mean, I, we didn't linger much on school, but yeah. I mean, the way we tell the, you tell the story of the factory, that on the whole, you were allowed to be, both by yourself and by those in charge of you, yourself a lot of the time. Yeah, I think that the thing I struggle with is allowing myself to allow myself to be myself. Um, and I think it's a familiar... I think it's a familiar discomfort with how I feel in my own skin. So it's, um, people often say, oh, you're really comfortable with not knowing, and it's, oh, not really. Um, it's just such a familiar discomfort that it doesn't bother me anymore. I think, I, I suppose I mean something slightly different. I mean, it means to, seems to me that if you're interested in people, that yeah. brings daily joy. So yeah. that's quite, but also you're, you're very, you're very, you're quite confident in your thought patterns, which must bring happiness. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I know you have imposter yeah. syndrome, but I mean, I actually think that's entirely normal for anyone except. I just I take my imposter syndrome onto stage. I did a did a TED talk as my inner critic about how shit my talk was going to be. Um, so, <laughs> but but I think yeah, that's all part of being human. So I am. It's lovely what you said there. Actually, I am. I've learned to trust more so over the last 10 years or so. Um, again, through work that I've done and through coaches, through working with a therapist regularly, which I recommend to anyone, is trusting this flow of consciousness. Um, I think life's a conceptual art project, basically, um, that you never get to the end of. So I'm just thinking, right, what's the next thing? What's the next bit of not knowing to explore? Yes. Um, well, it's funny, when, I, when I, I did a talk at the Do Lectures in, I think, probably 2016, yeah. And, and I recorded a series of podcasts from there. And, and afterwards, I went round to everyone and I said, I'm going to ask you what you thought of my talk. Right. Can you say it was crap? Yeah. Um, so I went round exactly like you yeah. and I got, um, you know, about 10 people. So halfway through the podcast that I'd done of interviewing other people, I said, and you know, I asked people what they thought of my talk. Yeah. And people go, oh, it's crap, Charlie. Really disappointing crap. Yeah, yeah. And my first cousin wrote to me after listening to it and said, I didn't actually think it was that bad. Oh, right, nice. He, he completely yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he... <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Um, Steve, thanks so much. That's absolutely amazing. I mean, I no, could talk pleasure to you. Yeah, so likewise. Fascinating. I think we've, there's some uh, kindred spirits here. Very much so. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to Steve, and thank you very much to you for listening to this. I'll be back with another podcast very soon. Thank you very much to my friend Jim Friend for his patient editing. And as I say, if you get a chance, please figure out how to rate and review this podcast. That would mean a lot to me. Thank you. See you. Bye.